Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Sounds very nice not to have to hike all that way. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, that's Mount Gerizim, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where our people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. This is breaking cultural taboos of the day. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to him, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish or finish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you love us that you seek the outcast, that you willingly enter into difficult conversations with patience and grace. And so we pray now, confessing our own weakness, our own need to hear from you, that you would come and enter into this time with us by your Spirit and instruct us. Lord, where there's confusion, we pray that you would bring clarity and truth. Where there is uh, despair, we pray that you would bring your hope. And where there is death, Holy Spirit, come and work your new life. 
Do these things by your word, the same way you made the world by your word, we pray. Amen. Well, this is one of those passages that's so rich, we could easily uh, take this passage and treat it for the next four weeks. Uh, There's so many themes, so many things to talk about. I'm taking one Sunday, one angle. That's all I'm doing, and we're going to move on. So, if there's things in here you love, uh, forgive me. I may not get to them. What I want to talk about this morning is burnout and worship in particular. Burnout and worship. I'm convinced that if we follow Jesus in this passage, he will get down to the core of some of the weariness that we tend to feel as Americans. I want to start with a question, though. How is it that on the one hand... Jesus says, whoever receives him, the gift of God, will have uh, life and life abundant. He will have a stream of living waters coming out of him. And then on the other hand, without feeling any sort of inconsistency, Jesus seems to expect all of his people to enter into the hard work of sowing and reaping along with him. How does he put those two things together? Labor and joy, right? Hard work and being full of life, to most of us, don't seem to mix so well. About as well as oil and water. So uh, we usually think of rest as the absence of work, the lack of activity. So how can Jesus promise unceasing supply of life and joy to those who wear himself out in his service? What's he thinking? You know, burnout is something we talk quite a bit about these days. It's kind of the new occupational hazard. Uh, What we mean by burnout is when you are so exhausted... uh, from, putting, uh, from the work and energy you've put into your job, activities, relationships, you can't maintain any sort of social interaction. Uh, you get weepy and overwhelmed with anxiety uh, anytime someone begins to talk to you about something you need to do, uh, and you are crushed by the stress that you have. I speak personally here. Right? It's a terrible thing. Uh, to guard against this, we usually advise, well, you need to get enough sleep, and you need to get outdoor activities, and you probably need a better diet. Burger King is not going to uh, sustain you. And you need to slow down your unnecessary activities, and all those things are good. Uh, I'm not saying we should uh, ignore those things. But we often understand our need for less stress to mean that we need to have less service, less responsibility, and therefore less church stuff in our lives. Of all people, uh, pastors understand this line of thinking. Right? Uh, we understand the way that needs and commitments of the church, responsibilities, are a source of stress and exhaustion, myself no less. What's funny, though, about our answer is that Jesus says something very different in this passage. He doesn't offer the woman at the well uh, to get more exercise, and he doesn't tell, her, uh, tell his disciples that he really needs to set boundaries when his ministry schedule demands travel. Right? Uh, instead, he says that worship and work in God's presence are at the core of abundant life. Let me say it again. Worship and work are at the core of abundant life as long as they are in God's presence. It's not surprising we wouldn't include work as a source of rejuvenation, of course, but remarkably, if we were to list out the activities of things that rejuvenate us, we usually leave off one in particular. Worship. Right? Worship, Sunday morning especially, usually gets counted among those things that zaps our energy. Right? Uh, it's something we have to go to. It's a duty, especially if you want to play the introvert card. By the way, I'm a card-carrying introvert, so uh, just so you know, I'm on your team. 
But here in John 4, Jesus is convinced, in fact, that worship of the living God is the very thing that will transform our souls and give us what our souls need when they're tired. So I want to think about three things this morning. What is living water? What is it? Where does it come from? And then lastly, what does living water have to do with work? What does living water have to do with work? So Jesus offers this woman water. This is the first point. What is living water? As we mentioned in our reading, everything about this setting makes you thirsty, right? Imagine traveling 45 miles on foot in eastern Washington at noon, okay? Uh, Not an ideal situation. So Jesus shows up at the well, understandably thirsty, parched, weary, middle of the day, no shade. Uh, It says in verse 6, weary, that's the word you use after you've been digging ditches all day. Plum tuckered. That's how that literally translates, okay? Uh, Even this woman has a weariness about her, right? She goes out to the well alone. Uh, Usually this is a group activity. It's a very hard thing, getting uh, well water, if you've ever done it before. Uh, She's likely isolated because of her chronic adultery. She's seen as a threat to the marriages in the village, and so she's isolated by uh, everyone else. We should have no doubt that she herself carries around a number of deep longings. I'm not sure what else prompts so many dysfunctional relationships. But in the face of all this, Jesus offers her living water, even as he is tired and sitting. So what does he mean? Well, first of all, living water just means fresh running water in those days. We don't need to attach some extra idea to it. It's a picture of refreshment, of rejuvenation, of revitalization in life after exhausting and expiring yourself and the work and heat of the day, the dust of travel. It's what brings you joy in the midst of life's hardships. But he goes further. Look at verse 10. Jesus says it's a gift of God. That is to say, it's something you can't work for. It's something that God simply gives to you. Verse 14, he says, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. He says that unlike water from the tap, this living water does not bring temporary fulfillment. Well, how? Is it just extra thick? No. He continues, this water Jesus gives will become in that person a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Think about this image for a second. This is profound. Rather than taking away all your thirsts and longings, he implants into you an ever-flowing fresh stream which constantly quenches all of your thirsts, which constantly feeds you and never runs dry. In fact, the power of eternal life itself is actually said to be the root of the spring. Eternal life itself planted in you so that a whole new power, a whole new set of principles, a set of desires and energy now fills the nooks and crannies of your soul. So that life is no longer something you consume, something you need to get. Now, life is something that's produced within you. Jesus, in fact, is picking up on a whole Old Testament theme. Uh, If you know your Old Testament well, you've heard these promises. In fact, we heard it in our call to worship this morning uh, from Isaiah 12 and 44. And you can look throughout Isaiah. There's plenty of places. But Zechariah 14.8 says this, On that day, living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half to the west. 
It shall continue in summer as in winter. That's, that's not a seasonal thing. And Joel 2, uh, it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Joel 3, and in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley. Even Ezekiel 47, if you've read through the book of Ezekiel, it climaxes with the description of the new temple. After the temple had been destroyed, Ezekiel has this vision of the temple, and he's going around measuring it, and then he notices water coming out of every doorway in the temple. And as he begins to go in, he realizes that the water is actually getting deeper and deeper as he goes in to investigate. And finally, he actually gets washed over, and the angel who's with him has to pull him out, and he sees... Water is flowing out of the temple, into the valleys, and everywhere it goes, into the deserts, even into the sea, it brings life. It says this, So everything will live where the rivers goes, where this river goes. Fish are brimming in this river. On the banks of both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month. Because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. It's this beautiful image of water flowing out of God's presence. But what does it mean? This is describing the age of the Messiah as a fountain of water in the inner sanctuary flowing out and the Spirit being poured out on all nations like a tidal wave washing over the entire earth. And the only thing that produces life like this without itself running dry or getting tired is God himself. Jesus is saying that if you receive him, he puts in your inner person his spirit. God himself implants himself into your inner spirit so that now in you is this living water. It's this image of deep satisfaction in the person of God of all your longings being met in him, where before your souls were only dry and barren. Longings for meaning, for hope, for truth, for being known, for being provided for, these longings are met in the person of Jesus, the person who has no need of anyone, but who is himself the headwaters of life. Jesus is not telling you that there's anything bad about normal water. Rather, he's telling her that joy, rest, refreshment, the things that she desperately needs, can be found, but they can be found only in him. Some of you here this morning don't know the Lord at all. I just want to say, what you need to hear is that what you have been taught to strive after, uh, whether through your families or through educational systems or anything else, is only good, but only for a short ride. It's only good for a short ride, and then it leaves you feeling much uh, worse and empty. Uh, drugs like marijuana, meth, cocaine, alcohol, these are great examples, right? Quick high, and then what? You crash, and you're much worse off than you were before. But there's subtler drugs, too. Uh, comfort does the same thing. We want to get comfort for ourselves by working hard enough to get recognition at work, to get that raise or that better job. Uh, so also is the sense of control and power we so badly want in our relationships. 
security in our lives is a subtle drug. It's a subtle drug. But uh, just like the more obvious ones, it actually leaves us scared, anxious, hungry, and empty once we get addicted to it. Jesus does not diss earthly needs and pleasures. He just wants you to know that they're like cotton candy compared to real food and fellowship. You were made for much more. If you center your life on candy and junk food, of course you'll feel terrible and you'll come up empty. Jesus is saying that only he is real food, real drink. So Jesus, it turns out, is the source of this living water. He says that uh, he is the holy of holies. And this is exactly where their conversation moves and what our second point is. Where does living water come from? Worship of Jesus, who is the new temple, is the source of living water. Worship of Jesus is the source of living water. So Jesus says he's the source of these living waters because he is the new temple. So Jesus and the Samaritan woman get into the hot theological topic of the day. She brings it up. And Jesus doesn't dismiss it. You know, let's not split hairs. He takes it seriously. He says, in fact, uh, you, you actually don't know what you worship. You want to have this debate with me, but you actually don't know what you're talking about. And in fact, Samaritans, it turns out, had about seven different deities that they worshipped all together. Uh, and then you need to know they also rejected most of the Old Testament except for the first five books. So Jesus says, you don't know what you worship, but let me say this to you. The locale of worship is about to be eclipsed by a much bigger deal. Right? A much bigger deal is about to enter the scene. Namely, heaven itself is going to come down onto earth. So that now, whether you're in Jerusalem or in Mount Gerizim or Siberia... Heaven itself is accessible to you. He says that heaven is accessible because he has arrived. Look at verse, verses 23 and 24. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. In fact, he says... He is the arrival of the heavenly temple, the very holy of holies in the flesh. The very glory of God now given to his people by the Spirit, the same Spirit who used to fill the walls of the temple in Jerusalem, the same Spirit who is poured out on the earth, the same Spirit who indwells the holy of holies. Now we have Jesus present, accessible through that same Spirit. If you trust in Christ, you are given the living waters because you are given their source. The very presence of God in the person of Jesus through the Spirit. That is the source of these living waters. And if he puts his presence of living waters in you, you know what that means? That means that he is making you into temples. In fact, almost every passage in John, you can pull this out. John's very concerned about the temple, full of worship and spirit. This is where the Lord is leading you. So this means, first of all, that if you want to know where the Lord's taking you, this is what he's after, filling you with worship, with truth and spirit, with his presence. Let me say a few things here. This means that worship is at the very center of your rejuvenation. If presence of God in the temple is the source of the living waters, that means that worshiping and enjoying 
God is the source of your rejuvenation because worship is the enjoyment, the tasting, the basking, the delighting in the ocean of God's glory. This means that worship of Christ gives us access to all the things that we said living water is. Let me say that one more time. Worship gives us access to all the things promised about the living water. Satisfaction for your desires, for meaning. You come to the Lord. You hear from the one who has made all things, who directs the story of the world, who has a place for you in it, a place in his love. Desires for belonging. You are welcomed in as you worship, washed of your sin, called beloved, delightful child, brother and friend of the Lord Jesus, joined to a whole body of people. As you come and worship, you are known. Right? The Lord searches you and reaches into your soul even as you listen to His Word. His Spirit comes and fills you and ministers to you. Just as the Lord knew this woman better than she knew herself, the Lord knows us in the midst of worship. You also want to know the truth of the world? Well, in worship you hear the divinely inspired Word. The final Word from the God who knows and created all things directed to you. We all want to be cared for and not simply scratch out an existence with constantly worried about what we're going to get our next meal from. And in fact, worship is the satisfaction of this desire. Worship more than anything else, friends. As much as we might think that we are offering songs and praise to the Lord and offering ourselves to the Lord, certainly there is that. Worship is the Lord ministering to us. Worship is the Lord coming to us caring for us, speaking tenderly to us, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good as He feeds us. So being with the Lord is rejuvenation. It's life, it's hope, it's rest. This is true of public worship, what we do here, but it's also true of your private worship, as you worship the Lord throughout the week, as you enjoy Him in your own homes. So this means that worship is the antidote to burnout. Worship is the antidote to burnout. Let me just tell you, I've had a very uh, busy and tiring summer. Uh, this is a good word. Uh, not working harder, not getting on top of that pile of stuff. Enjoying the Lord is the, worship, is the antidote to your burnout. And that's because burnout is an, is an essentially hopeless and despairing place. Let me explain. We like to think of burnout as kind of a special modern thing, this uh, this particular disease that we've acquired since about 1955 in our modern era that uh, we have special rights to. But in fact, uh, people who have done some work on the history of this idea say not so. And I've included a quote for you from uh, this British professor uh, who I got to read her article a couple weeks ago. She says, not so. This is on page three in your uh, bulletin. She says... The fact that our energies are limited and that this worries us is very much part of what makes us human. What changes through history is not the experience of exhaustion as such, but rather the labels we invent to describe it, the causes we mobilize to explain it, and of course the specific cultural discontents that we readily map onto it. That is to say, exhaustion is exhaustion. The packaging changes with every generation. Being burned out is a socially respectable condition, implying, as it does, that one has simply worked too hard. 
carries less stigma than depression. It's a disease of those who have overtaxed themselves in the name of work. And it might therefore be worn almost as a badge of honor. Burnout signifies a work ethic carried to the extreme. You know, we remember that burnout uh, can function like this badge of honor for us. Ah, I've just been working so hard. I'm really burnt out. We can start getting to the real core of what burnout is. Frustration that my abilities are limited. This can sometimes be a way of covering our shame, shame that we aren't as powerful, as competent, as composed as we want to convince ourselves that we are. Uh, for pastors, by the way, this is often meets us in the world of relational needs. Uh, we see mountains and piles of things that need to be tended to, people who need to be cared for, called, prayed for, mentored, counseled, and after we've done it all, we still feel them more deeply. For many of us, this is what we feel as we try to live our ideal life. Right? We work really hard so we can have the things that we think will really satisfy us. We pile activities on activities because we think that eventually our kids will be happier and more virtuous and we will be a little more competent, we'll have more friends. But when we stop to take stock of our situation, we find that we're no more happier, we're just more tired. Burnout is what happens when you've been exerting all of your energies in the hopes of accomplishing something and find out that you're no closer to success than when you began, but you're a whole lot more tired. That's burnout. But what I'm saying is that uh, burnout is not just exhaustion. Burnout is exhaustion without hope. So what we need is the humility and the hope that worshiping Christ produces in us. We need the humility and the hope that worshiping Christ produces in us. Humility, first of all, because worship calls us to admit those weaknesses. Calls us to come before the Lord and admit that we are destitute, that we're desolate, that we're empty, and heaven forbid that we're needy apart from Him. Worship calls us to a humility as we bask and enjoy the power, the competence, the glory of another person, of Christ our Lord. But this is also why it's our hope. Worship gives us hope that we find all we have needed in Him. That as we come to Him, He's not simply more powerful, more uh, glorious. He, in fact, has offered Himself to us. That as we come to Him, we find hope because He not only cares for us, but calls us to follow Him and to join Him. And this brings us to our last point. Jesus came to work and calls us to join him. So, what does work have to do with living water? If I want rest from burnout, work seems like the last thing I want. And of course, as soon as I say that work and follow Jesus, service, most of us internally, let's be honest here, we all have this sense of dread, right? The needle scratches off the record. I liked what you were doing in the first two points, now, it's just, let's just stop. How is it that on the one hand, Jesus promises that whoever receives him will have abundant life, and yet on the other hand, without flinching, calls them to give away their lives in his service? Has he forgotten what he said in the first part of the chapter? 
Let me read verses 31 through 38 for us again. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Remember, he was weary in verse 6. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? I love it. They're always confused. I feel affinity to these guys. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to finish or accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. I think uh, the ideal most of us have for the way life should be with Jesus is like an all-inclusive vacation. Kind of like a cruise ship, right? Uh, where we think there should be mountains of treats, fun, sleeping in, movies on demand, nothing expected of us. So when we hear the Lord say, you must take up your cross and follow me, you must serve me, we cringe because we want to be treated like kings. We'd rather not serve the king. Of course, uh, it's easy to bring this expectation into all areas of our life. I do it at home. Uh, it's easy for us to bring this into the church. We can be full of complaints and yet uh, little on the offers to help, to actually see things get there. But Jesus confronts all of this, calling us to join him in the work, and he does this without flinching. And here's how. Here's how. He does this because being made a temple doesn't simply mean that we are delighted in or that we are simply to keep ourselves pure. Those things are true. It also means that we are a place of sacrifice. That our lives are to be constantly poured out like a drink offering as a living sacrifice to the Lord. That's the way Paul talks about his life. That means that temples can be bloody places. This doesn't mean that you should be reckless with your time. I'm not saying you all don't need to be careful with your boundaries or take vacations or now you just need to overcommit. That's not at all what I'm aiming at. But what I am saying is that you can take all the vacations in the world and still be just as burnt out as when you began. Amen? Jesus' work is sacrificial and hard, but it's fueled by worship. It's sustained by God's presence, and it's encouraged by the fellowship of believers, and it promises great joy in the harvest together. So, first of all, work with Jesus is wearying. He himself has wearied himself. He passes up on food so he can get down to the work of finishing up this conversation with the Samaritans. This image of sowing and reaping is not a light one. If you've ever done that work, it's hard. It's backbreaking. It's manual labor. If you've joined the service of Jesus in the church, you know that the metaphor fits. It's tiring work. We should not beat around the bush. It's mentally, emotionally, and physically tiring work to do the Lord's service. And he knows it. But unlike other hard jobs, we don't have to hide our weakness. You're not afraid of being cut from the crew when you come to the boss and say, I'm just tired. He also cares for us in our weakness. But wearying though the work is, Jesus says it actually sustains him. This is not just spiritual workaholism. He's not some fanatic for punishment. Uh, Jesus 
took breaks and he went uh, and went and prayed and had time away. But instead, this is the voice of worshipful worshipful work. This is the voice of worshipful work. Jesus enters his work with trust in his Father, joy as he knows his Father sees him, and strength as he works in his Father's presence. What I want to say is that this is actually the hope the Lord offers us this morning. The Lord doesn't call you into his work without also offering you the same things that sustained him. And I want to think about what those are. So verse 38, Jesus says that you have hope of fellowship with Jesus himself. Right? Jesus has been saying that he's doing the Father's work of the harvest, but now he sends his disciples into the same work. That is to say that you ride out in the same truck to the same job site with Jesus. Right? You're going to the same job. When you do the Lord's work, you are not sent off to do it alone, but you get to join Jesus in it. You get to enjoy him and labor in his presence. He also says that the work itself is his, that it rests on his shoulders. This is verse 39. Jesus says that we are not beginning from scratch. We're not reinventing the wheel, but that we are entering work that he has been doing and has been going on for years and years ahead of us. Now think about this. In the kingdom of God, Jesus has already done all the hard labor. Maybe you caught it when I read, and Jesus said, my, will, my food is to do the will of the Father and finish his work. You know, Jesus says on the cross, after he's suffered for our sins, what does he say? It is finished. There's nothing we can add. He has dealt with our sins and created a new eternal life. <clears throat> And now, actively reigning from on high, he is building his kingdom, constantly pouring out the living waters of his spirit on the people in his church. And this means that when we enter his service, we are not simply, uh, we are simply reaping the work that he has been doing. Did you catch that? Others have labored, you reap. That's what Jesus is saying. He's done all the hard work. What's our job? To reap. You know, uh, Nate and I often think about this. We, are, we have so many wonderful and godly saints in our church. And uh, you need to know that we give thanks for you all every week. Uh, it strikes us quite a bit that as we come to hard points in ministry and we think about needs in our church, we'll just sit down and pray. Lord, uh, we need help here. We need people who have this area of skill. We need people who can uh, serve in this way. And guess what? Three to six months later, either someone moves from across the country and joins our church with that particular skill set, or someone's life circumstance changes, and all of a sudden they're able to serve in this way. The Lord is constantly providing. You need to know that you all are a gift to us, that you all are a great blessing to us as we labor together. But we also need to realize that, in fact, the church is constantly reaping the work of our fathers and mothers in the face for the last 2,000 years. Every time you hold a Bible in your hand, you are reaping the labor of people who have done the hard work of translation. Every time you sing a song, every time you read a Christian book, or you read even the Psalms, you walk into a church building, you are reaping the benefit of the work your brothers and sisters have done hundreds, if not thousands, of years before you. So we're, in fact, writing this 
massive wave that's continuing to grow of God's people putting themselves into the task. And the fruit continues to multiply. And we are on the receiving end of it as much as anything else. That's God's vision for our labor with Him. But He also says we have this hope of harvest. Look at verse 36. This is beautiful. He says that God will give such growth to the seed sown by the sower that will grow so quickly and abundantly that the harvest will happen even while he's still sowing. Right? This is from Amos 9, if you know your Old Testament. He's saying that the sower and the reaper will rejoice together. That's usually separated. But he's saying, in fact, the growth will be so great that you are together in the harvest. Now, the harvest is obviously, in this context, people being brought in to share in these living waters. But the beautiful thing, crazy thing about working with the Lord, is that the harvest ratios are never one-to-one. Right? My boys uh, scattered a whole bunch of carrot seed in our backyard, and the ratio was like five seeds to one carrot. (laughs) With the Lord, the ratio is one seed to 30 or 60 or 100. The Lord multiplies whatever amount you've put into his work. That's how grace works. We feel ourselves to be working. The Lord takes our small offerings and multiplies them. So while the work itself is tiring, it's never hopeless. It is only the work Sorry, it is the only work that actually gives you life itself. And that is because as you worship and enjoy Christ, entering his work will be more and more joyful and restful as you are better and better at trusting him and hoping in him and enjoying him and knowing that you join him in this work. I want to say a few things to us as a congregation. Some of you here are working very hard in Lord's service. I see you throughout the week, showing up, thinking of things, praying, visiting each other, uh, getting to the hospital, visit rooms long before Nate and I can, uh, showing up in each other's homes. I see you. But better than that, the Lord sees you. He sees everything you do for him. He sees every single act of service, every single prayer, even the smallest and most secret act of faithfulness, the Lord sees and the Lord loves to honor You may not see the fruit of your labors, but you need to know that the Lord is using you and your work is not in vain. So if you're feeling burnt out, take your exhaustion to the Lord and enjoy Him. Just enjoy the Lord this week. Also, take the depressed and discouraged part of your burnout to the Lord and worship Him and rest in Him. Just remember that it's His work and He offers you to join Him, not because He can't get on without you, for you to have a stake in the joy of the harvest. You get to join the work so that you can enjoy the harvest. This is what your soul needs more than anything else. After all, what else do you have to offer except the life of Christ in you? Last thing you need to know is that if you're feeling burnt out, let's talk about it. Right? Come talk to me. Your brothers and sisters need to know how you're doing to love you and to pray for you and encourage you. Some of you this morning uh, find this most of this message a challenge. Let me just say simply, if you're a disciple of Jesus, then service is an essential part of your life with him. If you're not serving the Lord sacrificially, you are missing out on huge parts 
of the joy of the Christian life. I know it's scary. I realize that entering into service, if you have not been in service, is a scary thing. You feel your inadequacy. That's overwhelming. You feel the things you need to learn. That's terrifying. But I also want you to know that if the Lord calls you to the work, He will always supply what He demands and more. The Lord is faithful to His people. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, especially as we enter into this fall and we look ahead to our schedules becoming busier and tired, tired days ahead, would you intervene into our lives and fill us with a sense of your nearness, of your presence, that you see, that you know, and in fact that we have hope of harvest in you. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have never called us to service that you yourself have not done. And most of all, that you have been serving us through your blood and resurrection life now reigning for thousands of years, preparing the gifts that we enjoy, preparing the good things that we profit from. Lord Jesus, come and minister to us now. Prepare our hearts as we come to your table. In Jesus' name. Amen.